0: Welcome to Fiscal Fitness with your hosts, John Grace and Daniel Medina. They have all the questions about investing, planning, retirement, and the future. You could say it's all they live for. While it can seem daunting getting everything sorted out and the important questions answered, they'll do their best to make it that much easier. Now, here's John Grace and Daniel Medina.
1: Thank you for joining us on Fiscal Fitness. I am John Grace, your host, along with my co-host, Daniel Medina. And this is our very first show on Voice America. We're delighted to be here and we're delighted that you could join us, uh, take time out of your busy schedule to kind of get a sense for what's going on and how can you play the game, the money game to win. Uh, You know, things go up, things go down, but uh, at the end of the day, everyone needs to set some goals and that's what we're here to do, to coach you to set those goals and maybe help you work to achieve those goals or at least help you see how you might know what the goal is and then whether or not you're on target. So let me give you a little background, and I'm delighted that we have a special guest with us, Rodney Johnson with Dent Research. I'll talk more about him, but uh, Daniel and I will bring him in after we tell you a little bit about ourselves. I am, as I say, John Grace, uh, Founder, President, Investors Advantage, Incorporated in uh, Westlake Village, California, where we've been helping one client at a time since 1979. What we do is help investors plan their financial success in three ways. First, we want you to see how much money you will need to make work optional on your time frame. Two, we will identify how to keep the family in the money, even in the event of the loss of a provider and and a wage earner. And then three, to the extent that there are children or grandchildren, help you put your plan in place to successfully plan for college costs so that hopefully no one graduates without anyone having a whole lot of debt because we planned in advance. And that is, by the way, our trademark. Uh, Planning is our primary focus, and our trademark happens to be proof is in the planning. (laughs) So I think that pretty much sums up exactly what we're doing and where we're coming from. Uh, This isn't our first time to the rodeo. I was first licensed in insurance in 1978, and my first license in securities was in 1979. We are part of a larger group, Elite Financial Network, that manages approximately $800 along with our brokerage firm, Securities America Incorporated. One of our distinctions is our emphasis on planning. And I'll show you another distinction, which involves uh, Rodney Johnson uh, in just a little bit. But let me first uh, give you a sense for whom our co-host is here. That's Daniel Medina. Uh, Man, time flies when you're having fun, right, Daniel? I mean, I'm celebrating my 41st year in in the securities business. Uh, Daniel is celebrating his birthday this month, along with this month is his 14th uh, year with Investors Advantage Corporation. So, Daniel, give us a sense for where you started, your background, and and why you're here.
2: Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be here. And yeah, I think I was... uh... Right. Third job out of college when I joined uh, the Investors Advantage. And uh, I grew up actually in LA, born and raised and never really left. So don't plan on leaving anytime soon. Went to school at California Lutheran University in Thousand Oaks, majored in business with an emphasis in marketing and a minor in math. And math was actually my fun subject. I knew I wanted to do something that I enjoyed. So it was going to be either physics or math. And I kind of just flipped the coin and went with math and just kind of ran with it. So all the calculus and differential equations and those, those were always my fun subjects. So out of college, I started doing some toy, some uh, project management for a toy company, then some marketing for a real estate company. And after that, I kind of found my way to investors advantage, started on the administrative side and then kind of started going more into the investment and financial planning part of it. And that's where I really, that's what I really enjoy. I, I love to me, it's like a puzzle. Uh, the question, typically, the question from each client are usually pretty similar. How are we going to get to what point, by what time, and how much money do we need to produce when we get there? So it's like a puzzle to me. Um, putting the puzzle pieces together is is the challenging and the fun part. And that's part of why we we do what we do. The proof is in the planning. That's that's where we tend to focus.
1: This is true. And uh, many times people, investors, throw money at things, right? And they feel good when the account goes up. They don't feel so good when the account goes down. And they think it often has something to do with their intelligence. It typically does not have anything to do with their intelligence. Uh, But it's one of those emotional roller coasters we just kind of put ourselves on. But in many cases, particularly when it comes to financial issues, they're, they're, they're just math equations. And, and, and I, when I say just, for some of us, well, many of us in America, math is a four-letter word we don't like to use. It may be the only four-letter word we don't like to use, but it's probably a word that we should become more familiar with and, and more accustomed to uh, figuring out how to use math so that we can see that we're not getting cheated, for example. That's a, that's a big issue. Or that we can see we're on track for achieving the results we, we want to uh, see uh, come about. And and what we find is, unfortunately, we find so many people, and I might even say by, this isn't scientific, but I suspect it's 90% of us, we're so preoccupied on working for a living, we never take the time to really look at how are things going to work out after our last paycheck? And that's an important question. So people just think it's going to work out or it's somehow gonna magically come together or that there's just some kind of pixie dust that we can put in the equation. And, you know, we're going to rely on social security. And for most of us, that may be all, that may be it, that there may be no more than that uh, coming in. And as I say, the question is, regardless of whether you think you're old or, you know, haven't put your plan together sooner, you're just starting now, there is always hope when we take action. And that means discovering at what point do you work, make, want to make work optional? What kind of income do you need at that point in time? Adjusted for inflation and then you know, accounting for the returns. And, and then what is your target? Uh, by the way, uh, we are now working with uh, frontline workers at, at no cost to put together a financial plan as our way to say thank you. you. You give so much frontline workers do every day to us and you get so little in return. So Daniel and I are delighted to sit with any uh, frontline worker for 90 min- uh, an hour and a half, 90 minutes, if, if it takes that long, uh, to put together a plan that really looks at the three parts of the puzzle. Uh, what are you going to need to make work optional? What happens in the event one of the breadwinners passes away prematurely? And how about educating those kids? So we'll work around examples of that. Uh, but in many cases, the goal is going to be a multiple of a million dollars or more. In some cases, it can be less, but the point is, what is your goal? Let's establish one. I know it seems daunting. I know it seems impossible, but there can be ways of improvement. So um, we want you to know that the financial plans that we create for our clients are highly customized, but they all have three things in common. They are strong, safe, and simple. Strong means they can weather market uncertainty. Safe means we endeavor to mitigate risk. And that's an important one because the industry, in my opinion, one of the misgivings I have about the industry is the only message we really convey to investors is buy and hold, hold and hope, sit and take it. And savvy investors are frankly insulted by those things that we have become so comfortable saying to people, well, just buy the dips, just keep adding into the equation. So some people say, look, you, you have all the money I have. I can't buy the dips. This is it. Uh, But the real question is, not are you conservative, moderate, or aggressive, because most of us don't have a real understanding of what those terms mean, including the people asking the question. So we would submit, and and we will demonstrate this as we work together uh, every week, we'll be here on Wednesdays at noon for an hour, to look at how much risk can you accept, both in percentages and dollar amounts, because we want you to see, for example, if the market was off as it was from, I believe, February 19th through March 23rd, well over 30%, what's your number? Don't look at it quarterly, don't look at it monthly, don't go, everything will be fine, and go back to sleep like Rip Van Winkle. Let's look to see how bad it got, because if we don't learn from the past, it would seem to me that we're destined to repeat it. And, And if it's a good memory, we want to repeat it, but if it's not a good one, we want to learn from it. And in in that regard, what I'm saying is we want to see what we can do from the past to reduce the volatility. In other words, not be down over 30 to 37 percent. Some investors were off more than that. Could you have been down less? If you find that you could have been down less in that time period, that might give you some cold, hard confidence or at least some way to believe that the next time the grits hits the pan, your money doesn't have to go down like the Titanic, never to see the light of day again while you, while you need the money. And that's part of the equation too, in terms of when are you gonna need the money? Because if you're never gonna need it, it may not matter what the market does. But if you need it, it certainly matters how much volatility you can accept because you wanna be able to recover in your time frame. So um, as I say, it's, the plans have to be strong, They have to be safe and they have to be simple. And simple means you understand what you own and why you own it. You're not just throwing darts. As I say, you're not just happy when the account goes up. You see what that account is doing relative to what you're trying to achieve. No different than when you're able to get on an airplane again. You know, you leave from this spot. You expect to arrive at that spot at that time. And what you want more than anything is to under the best conditions arrive on time and safely. And it takes some time to put that plan in action. And it certainly takes some time to execute it. Putting a financial plan is no different. It's just a a longer runway, if you will. So I I shared with you that I had a second distinction. Um, That leads us to um, talk about our guest speaker here. You know, for those of you who are investors, please feel free, and I'm going to ask Rodney to comment on this because he's been in the business for a long time, if those you know who are in the securities business happen to pay for independent research. Why? Well, I would say it this way. Because, you know, when those of us in the business don't pay for independent research, I suggest that it often leaves us to learn from the companies and the hierarchy where they produce products and services to sell that include it might be real estate, it might be uh, insurance, it might be mutual funds, it could be stocks if the company happens to underwrite, and it, it could include exchange-traded funds. These are all things that they're highly recommended, but many times they're highly recommended by the people who make them. So what else would I find? I have an ETF. I'm going to be talking about the greatest ETF that's been known to mankind. It's by paying for independent research we have found that has been helpful in um, showing clients a bigger picture. Where we don't get lost in the sales data, or the emotion, or the inventory, uh, or even the earnings, for example, but we do get to see, um, you know, what's the bigger picture? What's driving people to do what it is they do? So that we can get a read on the economy in a way that we can see where there are headwinds keeping us, making it harder for us to reach our destination. And when there are tailwinds, helping us reach our destination even more efficiently and, and, and even faster, but we can see we're on track. So we wanna see those headwinds and tailwinds because if we're just looking at sales, we don't recognize the pattern that we're in. So let me, let, let's let do this. Let me ask you to, to I'm gonna ask you two questions uh the first question is just to give you a sense for how this isn't all that complicated and again <laughs> rodney has taught us everything we've known and we've been paying dent research up to ten thousand dollars a year starting in 1999 and and glad we did i i had to take a test to become master certified became a charter member of dent research and as i say it's been helpful at helping us all understand the big picture so if we if i asked you a question it would be at what age did you consume the most potato chips in life? And while you're thinking about that, I'll ask you a second question. At what age did you buy the most potato chips in life? And most of us don't know, right? Because we don't see the pattern that we're in and we're left to believe that we're all doing something unique and very different than everybody else. When in many cases, it's really kind of, we're part of the herd We're, you know, you go to junior high, middle school, grade school high school college generally not too far apart from each other it's kind of a range and it turns out that many of those patterns there there are ranges that we are involved in that we just don't see it's kind of like you can't see the forest for the trees because you're too busy being in the middle of the forest so if you've uh, thought about the the age at which you consume the most potato chips In the age at which you purchase the most potato chips, we we have the answers for you. And by the way, it comes from the U.S. Census Bureau. So this isn't something that was on uh, social media last night at three o'clock in the morning. Uh, We see that 14 happens to be the age at which most Americans consume the most potato chips. And gosh darn it, you know, when when I think about it, what I see is that was exactly me uh, every day at Audubon Jr., uh, I had to have a bag of lace potato chips. And on the weekends, it was maybe two or three bags. No day could go without me having a bag of barbecue potato chips. That's just what I had to have. Today, I don't. <laughs> and so when we look at the other side of that equation, well, is there an age at which you might have uh, purchased the most potato chips? Yes, guess what? That, that was very predictable. It's, uh, I believe it's early 40s, like 41 when you on average had what? A 14 year old in the household, which required you to buy the most potato chips in life to satisfy that 14 year old and all of the children around them, whether they be family or friends or neighbors. So it just helpful in a very simple way to get an understanding as to there may be bigger patterns at play that are impacting us in ways that we don't see so we're left to look at sales data, and as long as it's good, we should, uh, we should invest more, right? Or to look at inventory, or look at interest rates, or to look at uh, you know uh, those kinds of things that, that, that I, I would say are important, but they're not the primary driver. So we're gonna ask uh, Rodney to explain how he sees this as a primary driver when we, we come back from our break. Um, and so it, just to give you a sense that Rodney Johnson is present H.S. Dent uh, Publishing, uh, and he's joined us on our first Voice America show to help you see how studying demographic trends can be helpful in understanding how our economy is changing right before our eyes, uh, both in small ways and in very large ways. And as I say, it's not all about the sales predictions, the sales projections, the inventory, or even earnings. We'll talk about earnings because we want Rodney to give us a sense for what's going on in this crazy market these days, especially this week, and it's only Wednesday, uh, and you know, what does he see as far as uh, where we're going from here. So at this point, we'll take our first break and we'll bring Rodney on right on the other side. become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network
3: on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america
0: at investors advantage corporation our trademark statement the proof is in the planning represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance coupled with a sound plan for the future with the challenges facing our country's frontline workers we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return 2077. That's ybpoor.com or 805-495-2077. We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service. And we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey.
3: Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy.
0: Now, back to Fiscal Fitness.
1: Welcome back, folks. John Grace along with my co-host in in crime, Daniel Medina, uh, here at Fiscal Fitness. And we have uh, Rodney Johnson on deck, uh, who, as I say, is president of HS Dent uh, Research uh, and is uh, an old friend, uh, someone I've learned a great deal from, and we wanted to kick off this uh, particular radio show with Rodney because he's been he and Harry Dent and the team at Dent Research have been so helpful to us. We thought it was a great uh, way to kind of begin. Let's see. Let's recognize some of these fundamentals. So, um, Rodney, we you, you heard us talk about 14 uh, is the age at which most of us eat the most potato chips, and 41 is the age at which most of us buy the most potato chips. And and I believe you were a bond trader uh, back in the early 90s before you joined uh, Harry Dent. So give us a sense for for your background. And why math is, to you is not a four letter word.
3: Well, <laughs> hey, John. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, you know, I, I came out of Georgetown in the late 80s. And, you know, the, what you did when you came out of a school in the Northeast is you rolled up to New York. Everybody did it when you come out of business school. And so uh, mm-hmm. I ended up in New York trading bonds. And um, it, it was, you know, it's poker over the phone. And so as long as you're good enough at it and making some money, things are kind of fun. But after a few years you realize you know this doesn't have an end Th- this game just continues whether you're the cog in the wheel or not and so um like many others uh you know i'd done my time and kind of looking around and i realized that one of the major technicians a gentleman there uh did great work ralph Actonpora was using this chart and and i knew i'd seen the chart somewhere and i couldn't place it it took me a while uh and so i'm searching around on my bloomberg terminal back in the day And realized that the chart came from Harry Dent's book, and it overlaid the S and P 500 uh, with the number of 46-year-olds in the U.S. You got to remember this is the early '90s, and so this is, you know, clunky real uh, research back then. Uh, But his point was that when you have, it's not people investing that drives the market; it's earnings that drive the market, because rising earnings then attract a higher stock price, and so earnings are driven by people spending money. So if you can estimate when people spend the most in the economy, then you've got something. You've got some power. And so that's the work that Harry Dent did in the late 80s, is he realized that people spend the most around 46, 47 years old. And you might say, well, wait a second, I'm older than that. I spend more than that, blah, blah, blah. That's true. But you have to compare it to your income. When we're spending the most in our late 40s, it's because our children are at the oldest they're going to be and still in our home. And we're spending by using debt. We use credit cards. We most likely just borrowed to buy that biggest house we're going to own around 44, 45. And so we're doing what's called factored spending. We're, we're spending way more than the income we bring in. And so we may spend a little bit more in our mid to late 50s, which is when we tend to make the most. But we're actually spending from savings and current income and we're paying down debt and when you pay down debt you actually shrink the economy some and so it's very fascinating that if you can track the number of 46 48 year olds in the economy then you can kind of see how this pig is going through the python in terms of spending and that's exactly what he did and so harry was looking at uh, of course the baby boomers back in the day right And so they were born in the 40s and 50s with the highest number born in 1961. You add 48 years to that, you get 2009. And so now we're talking back in 1987, 88, Harry Dent's doing this research and he's put out this chart and he said, look, somewhere around 2008, 2010, things are going to fall apart because we're going to see this massive just, you know, reduction in spending as the boomers kind of pull in their horns. And so I joined with Harry in 1997, uh, having seen some of his research in different places and eventually I ended up working with him at a hedge fund, mutual funds and different things. And we've continued this research and continued writing, you know, John, as you said now, more than 20 plus years uh, with you around as well. Um, And and it comes from, like you said, the Census Bureau. They do a survey, uh, the Consumer Expenditure Survey every year, and they look at how much people spend. And then they ask all the demographic questions. How old are you? Where do you live? How much money do you make? Do you have a college degree? And so we know a ton about people and how they spend money. And we can pinpoint, just like you said, when people spend the most on a category they call salty snacks. And it's 42 years old because they had the kid at 28 on average and they're 14 years old eating them out of house and home. And so we're able to do that with things that are you know, with younger kids. You buy the most cereal at 38. Guess what? Your kid's 10 years old. Um, You spend the most on car insurance when you're about 46. That kid is 16, 18 years old. And then you look at what goes on later in life. You spend the most on RVs when you're 59. You got some money. You wanted an RV. You're moving along. Maybe by 60, 61, you realize you don't like parking that darn thing, or maybe you haven't used it at all, but it tends to be at about 59 years old. And so Using this information, we can actually track spending in the United States and estimate growth in the economy and the markets. And of course, now we're not just tracking the boomers as they've, of course, passed the peak in spending and are moving into retirement. Pretty good numbers. We're tracking the millennials who are walking up their own spending wave.
1: That's very interesting. Uh, so what, what are you seeing in terms of uh, the, the, the difference relative to the spending today between the millennials and the boomers? Where, where are they spending?
3: So the millennials are interesting, not for what they're doing, but for what they're not doing. It's been very consistent over several generations, because we have this data going back, you know, 60, 70 years, and then we can estimate pieces of it you know, going back into the 1800s, early 1800s we tend to become adults, start our career, get married, have kids. And the millennials have been pushing off having children. Now that's a key point in our research because one of the main things that happens to make you spend money is having children. You can choose not to go on a vacation. You can choose not to buy a new car, but you're not going to choose whether or not to buy diapers. When you need diapers, you're going to go buy the darn diapers. And so Having children puts you on a spending train that it's hard to get off of. And so the millennials have really suppressed um, childbearing in the United States. And so we actually are running underneath our population estimates right now, which is, you know, it's not a good thing, certainly. But you can track why the millennials came of age, a good chunk of them. just during or right after the great financial crisis there weren't as many employment opportunities a lot of opportunities uh, moved up to the top of the food chain And a lot of the wealth over the last 10, 12 years has actually flowed to people who already had assets. If you already had a house, you already had stocks, you already had bonds, then you tended to do better. And it was harder to break into those things, particularly buying a home, if you didn't already have one. And so we're still running behind the previous generation in terms of the millennials buying their first home. And so it's been very interesting to see that happen. But on the flip side, they still want it. If you ask them, which people do, Gallup asks this question every year, the young generation in the United States still wants a family. They still want kids. They want to do all the things that their fam that their parents did. They're just trying to find that financial stability before they make that happen.
1: So you know you what what you're saying, I'm hopeful that our listeners can kind of put the pieces together. And, and let me see if I can help draw that a little bit closer. With this kind of information it helps you understand why you might have friends as I do who are young in Argentina and they go with their 1-year-old uh, to Italy with their with their 1-year-old for a wedding and what they cannot find are baby diapers.
0: <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> why couldn't they find baby diapers in Italy? Rodney? I know the
0: answer. Yeah, you knew
1: you know the answer. Well, I okay. So we, okay, so we're, no we're looking at when we, when we look when we so that would be the question. Then we go look to see if the demographics. They're older on average than most of the rest of the world. I think they're you know they have a lot of eighty-year-olds in Italy. So if they have if there are diapers in the various supermarkets, they're for old people. <laughs> they're not for young people because I mean one of the things that we're seeing these days, right? is that uh, the, well? many of the younger people want kids, they're not having kids. And some of them don't want them at all. And, and, and this, this COVID uh, pandemic seems to have uh, dropped our birth rate off a cliff in the last year where it looks like we'll be off uh, 300,000 to 500,000 from what I can see in the number of new births in this country. And then the other side of the equation is, what, what is it now? We have more people in the world, 65 and older, than five and younger, we've never been here before. So when people say, you know, all the things just gonna snap back, well, it might, but let's understand as we get into our sixties and our seventies, the the need to buy the want may be there, but certainly you don't have the kids driving the checkbook like they used to, but the, you know, it it makes all a lot of spending other than healthcare, almost completely optional, healthcare (laughs) needing and someplace to live. So interesting times. Okay, so let's let's come forward, Rodney. Um, what are you looking at uh, in terms of how to read the economy today?
3: Well, and so we have to separate out, right. The economy is not the financial markets. the financial markets are not the economy. And so if I'm looking at the economy and I'm asking myself, what are we buying? What uh, industries are we driving forward, and where are people going to work? And so, Clearly, we're looking at knowledge base. Clearly, we're looking at you know the the social media and the different things. But then I'm asking myself: Are we doing service? Are are what are we doing to supply what is needed to the largest groups in our economy? Because I'm part of Gen X. I'm I'm that group. It was literally named Gen X because nobody cared what it was, and so <laughs> there just aren't enough of us out there. And so people are like, Who cares about that group, right? And so are we putting enough resources to supply what will be required or desired from the boomers? And the answer is no. I mean, a thousand times no. And it's not nursing homes. Everybody wants to put us in nursing homes. I don't know why that is. We spend the most on nursing homes at about 82, 83 years old. Everybody wants to act like you turned 65, 70 and all of a sudden you're eyeing that assisted living village down the street. You're not. What this is about is independent living things that will make your life better, easier, higher quality as you age. And it's not about a cane. Nobody, ask anybody 78 years old to talk about the best cane they've ever had. They don't want to talk about it. They want to talk about fun things in life, right? And so they're looking at things that help them read books that they can't see as well anymore. It's going to help them drive longer. It's going to help them open a can better. And so we're looking at many things, I think, that will be technologically driven that are going to make it easier for people who maybe lost a step or lost a little, you know, dexterity to stay at home longer because that's exactly what they want. Uh, the other piece of that is home health care. We pay home health care aides 10 bucks an hour. And I don't want my mother cared for by somebody who's making 10 bucks an hour. I want these people motivated and happy. And so we have done a terrible job of prioritizing the things that we say we value. And I think you're going to see a big recentering of this in the years to come as the boomers say, hey, wait a second, we're the biggest generation and we want to live really well, and this is not working out. Um, On the other end of that scale, you've got the millennials. And so the millennials are saying, wait a second, I want a place to live. And this is not working out for me because I can't find anything that's available near where I work or now with COVID near the places I want to be, like walk into a restaurant or, you know, um, physical structures that I want to be at, art, museums, concerts, whatever it is. And so I think you're going to see urban spaces redevelop and COVID is going to bring this in at light speed. Um, where they take what were office buildings, what were malls, what were shopping complexes that people don't go to, whatever it is, and they're gonna retool them to living spaces that the millennials are gonna make into cool spaces. And so I I think we're gonna go through a transformation here at both ends of the population uh, that will be very interesting for the economy for years to come.
1: Hmm.
2: That's fascinating, Rodney. I've been seeing a lot of work work, live, play areas coming up, just, just all over the place between LA and I live out in Santa Clarita and I'm seeing him there now too. And it's, it's, it's definitely the where things are going.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, um, it's interesting because in the United States, we, we have some privileges. We just do, uh, we are able to borrow money at an exceptionally low rate. Uh, we have a lot of technology available to us. Formation of capital is simple. And so there are a lot of things that we can do to try ideas and see how they work. And we're very diverse and and people don't talk about that. Our diversity across, you know, thought and everything else, it is a hardship in one area and it is a blessing in another because people come at problems from very different standpoints and points of view. You get into smaller countries that are more homogenous, you know, you get into the Netherlands, you get into Denmark, you get into Japan, Uh, you know, even in uh, Germany to a degree, uh, they tend to think of things in one way. Well, my goodness, you go from Texas to New York to California to, you know, Minnesota, and you're going to get four really different ideas on how to approach something, which allows us to be an incubation, you know, area for different ways to approach a single problem. And then the best one can win. And and it works. I mean, that is why our innovation tends to rise above other areas or other countries that tend to have more of a monolithic way of thinking. Hmm. Well, and
1: what do you see relative to depressions, for example? Uh, It looks like uh, some are suggesting these things just happen regardless of who's in office Uh, every 80. And now I see a pattern. Maybe it's every 90 years. Tell us what you see, please.
3: Well, and, and so now you're getting into, unfortunately, the, the downside of what we do. I mean, we were you know, talking, I, I was certainly on the call as you all were discussing in the intro about seeing the math and seeing the numbers. And so we watch the ebb and flow. And the ebb and flow does come from spending. It does come from how people uh, work with their monies and what they see. And what we have right now are the boomers planning for their retirement as best they can, right? And I saw a number the other day, and I think it was 60-something percent of boomers don't believe that they're um, uh, able to financially retire at this point or worried about it, whatever the number was. And the point is, you have the largest generation, and and granted, I know the millennials are larger in number, but their births are spread over more years. And so if you just kind of give me that, at least the second largest generation, a very large generation that controls the most capital that is more concerned with saving it than spending it you cannot get around this. There there is no way to make that different. The boomers are not looking to get the next big house to raise seven kids in. That's not their goal. Their goal is to make sure they do not outlive their retirement. And so they're paying down their debt. They are, you know, maybe they're shrinking their footprint by moving into a smaller house so they have less taxes. Maybe they're just staying in the same place but they're paying off the mortgage and then they're keeping the capital in the family. They want it to grow, mind you. They want to invest and see it grow. But if we're not spending and driving the economy to higher and higher growth, then it's really hard to keep the economy at a high level. And that's, that's when I was saying earlier that the economy and the markets are not the same thing. They don't track exactly the same. Our economy has been in trouble since the downturn, since 2008, 2009. And so people say, well, you know, it's been growing. It's like, ask yourself at what cost? Mm -hmm. We saw the largest generation move from spenders to savers in 2008, 2009. And you had the Federal Reserve kick in $4 trillion so that we could buy 1.5% GDP growth. That is not a good purchase, right? And so what we've done is we have plowed a ton of free money into this thing. And and we just did it all over again. We get to the pandemic, they plowed another three and a half trillion dollars in. What it took them five years to do after the great financial crisis, they did in about two and a half months after the COVID-19 pandemic started. And so we have had the Federal Reserve gin up the printing press like crazy to keep us out of what is a severe long-term economic downturn. And like I said, we bought eh, roughly 1.5 to 2.25% growth. And so that's been the problem. And we probably won't come out of this till 2023, 2024, when the millennials are able to push up and start spending more of their own money.
1: I love it. We'll come back to this. I want to pick up where you. Where we're going to have to have a little break here. Uh, to see what's on the other side, but also to kind of put it in perspective so people can really get uh, to see what's going on here. So we'll go to a quick break and then we'll pick up with Rodney Johnson, president of Publishing, right after the break.
2: Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home,
3: go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency
0: podcast on TuneIn, At Investors Advantage Corporation, our trademark statement, the proof is in the planning, represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance, coupled with a sound plan for the future. With the challenges facing our country's frontline workers, we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return. To reward our nation's frontline employees and clients, we're offering our financial planning services free for anyone serving in those roles. We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service, and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey.
1: The bottom line
3: in business talk. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: You're listening to Fiscal Fitness. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at ybpoor.com. Now back to Fiscal Fitness.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, This is John Grace, your host, along with my co-host, Daniel Medina on Fiscal Fitness. And we have uh, Rodney Johnson talking about uh, what's around the corner Let me see if I can frame it a little bit and you can pick it up from there, Rodney. Um, You know, one of the things that I think uh, Dent Research, you and Harry did so well, was put things in a perspective where people can really kind of get it. Because when there's a lot of numbers, a lot of people just immediately want to go to sleep. But I think one of the things that, that you all framed very well, is that the economy, first and foremost, is not going to be dictated by any Federal Reserve bank, including our Federal Reserve. And the central banks around the world would have you believe that they have all the tools they need to make the economy perform to perfection, not too hot, not too cold, as though they could put a thermostat on the economy and the machines will do all the work to heat up the area when it's uh, too cool, to cool it when it's too warm. But it just doesn't work like that. What it also doesn't do is follow the directives that the the economy has been given. And so maybe the best way that I thought made sense is to frame it from the standpoint of looking at the four cycles of uh, the weather, right? And uh, winter can be very harsh, uh, and it can kill a lot of living things and some things get stronger in the winter through all that pain, and the Federal Reserve would want you to avoid the pain, and the pain is actually healthy. But the really good news is whether you find it depressing, I don't like the word depression or recession, those are negative terms, uh, the, uh, but the, let's also understand that spring, so far, always follows winter. I don't think that's gonna change. So how do we weather the winter, if you will, so that we can get to the spring? All right, Rodney, give us a sense for that, please.
3: <laughs> well, and, and to follow on the analogy here, and it's something that we've, of course, used in our research, we're in what we call the economic winter season, which is marked by the, the largest group with the most wealth being uh, more inclined to save than spend uh, until the next group kind of comes along, which I took to, talked about before the break. And so this economic winter season, they last about 14 years. And so by our measure, it should be 2008 to about 2022. And then we should move into um, the the next uh, boom area based on the next generation Moving up, it's spending, spending more money, being in a position to spend more. There's no doubt that the millennials would love to spend more. They just don't have the money yet, right? And so the front end of the millennials, they're in their 30s. I mean, we might think of them as 22-year-olds playing video games, but they're not. They're in their 30s. And so they are moving into that area of their work life where they have more money to spend and can kind of push the economy around from their point of view. And so that's coming, but we're still a few years away. And so we have to get from here to there. And John, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Federal Reserve from the standpoint of trying to direct the economy, because we often talk about them as trying to save or, you know, just kind of keep us, keep a depression at bay or whatever. The Federal Reserve was put in place to tame the business cycle, and they were put in place by the Monetary Act of 1913. Ask yourself, since 1913, how have they done? it's not a really good track record, right? With the depression and all the different things that have happened, they just don't do a good job. Because at the end of the day, just like you said, they can't make you and me do something with our money. And that's the goal. Do, make no mistake about it. The Federal Reserve and, and every central bank is trying to get you as a person who holds capital to make a decision, a very clear decision. When the Federal Reserve puts overnight interest rates to zero, which is where they are today, they are signaling that you as a saver are supposed to take every nickel you have out of the bank and spend it. And the reason is inflation is not zero. Inflation is, you know, by their current measure, the ones they use about 1.5%. So if you hold a dollar in the bank for a year, and you're earning nothing on it, which you will, you'll earn zero, you're going to lose 1.5% of purchasing power. It's irrational for you to hold the money in the bank because you're going to lose purchasing power. And so they keep dropping the interest rate to motivate people who are saving money to go out and spend it. And on the flip side, they keep dropping the interest rates so that people who might borrow money, buy a house, buy a car, spend on a credit card, whatever it is, it's a cheaper decision. You can, you can spend a little bit more. You can spend a little bit easier because the interest cost is lower. Both things come from low interest rates. What they cannot change is your long-term goal. If my goal is retirement, dropping interest rates to zero so that I'll spend all my money does nothing for me it makes it harder. That's the stupid part of all this. It actually makes it harder for savers to reach their goals by them doing this. And so it's almost logic turned on its head. And and you know you've been there many, many times. We called our our, uh, conference events uh, irrational economics because economics are based on what's called the rational man principle. If the government does this, lower interest rates to zero, then a rational person will take all their money and go spend it because they don't want to lose purchasing power. And yet we don't. And that's what the Fed cannot do. And so in their infinite wisdom, what they've done over the last 12 years here and of course around the world is not make economic growth zoom to the moon like they want. They haven't forced us or persuaded or enticed us to spend all of our money to drive inflation like they want. What they've done instead is create other bubbles. They've created bubbles in real estate and bubbles in the financial markets. So they, they put money in the place they didn't want it to go. What they wanted to have happen is the economy zoom. And what instead happened was some financial assets zoomed. And so it hasn't worked like they wanted because they can't make us make a decision.
1: So you are talking about 2022 in terms of um, when the, 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 we like what we see. We're seeing a rebound, at least today, in this market uh are are we in for is that is that direction are we actually in a more serious uh correction
3: well the financial markets are a weird one john and i'll be the first to tell people i did not see this run coming over the 2010s because we're looking at the spending by consumers and and we've been on point if you look at our research and what we thought was going to happen and and how everything has worked you haven't seen economic growth like anybody would suspect having, you know, an extra $4 trillion and now $7 trillion thrown into the economy. And it's because we're saving it instead of spending it. And so I look at the financial markets, I'm cautious. Uh, I, I know what's going on with the Federal Reserve. As I said, they're printing this money and it finds its way into the financial markets through a series of steps where, you know, the lowest person buying high quality bonds is pushed out a little bit because the Federal Reserve is buying what they did. And then the person who is buying that steps out, and it goes all the way until the person buying stocks is buying more. And so it's, it's finding its way into those markets. Can it keep it levitated for the next, you know, three-ish years or so? I don't know. We are very extended in the financial markets. I think we are are very high. I'm concerned about it, um, but I do recognize that perhaps it doesn't it doesn't fall as far as I would think. But I certainly think we're overvalued here, and I worry about it.
1: Well apparently you you're not alone I mean um, and, and certainly you can you can contrast for us because some people i mean they 're not the best of terms necessarily, but there are some who say the multimillionaires, the institutions represent the smart money, and we can see some evidence, according to the president of at least One Club, where the net worth has to be over a hundred million dollars for you to be a member of the club, and apparently they have eight hundred members of the club and but he he reported last week. That um, and, and guess what, Rodney? They actually talk to each other about what they're doing. Isn't that a concept? Yeah. Uh, and and he took a poll and discovered that while the average um, family person has uh, 22 25% of their assets in the market, they have moved last year, they've increased their cash from wherever it was to on average about 19%. That's a pretty large increase. That's a pretty large uh, ratio in terms of cash. On the other hand, I think we've seen some evidence from some people would say the dumb money, the new money, if you will, where a lot of the young folks who maybe can't go to Vegas, can't go to the track, uh, saw the, the decline on March 23rd and rushed into the market where we've seen all these brand new accounts just come out of nowhere. In some cases, the new accounts are up from what I can see 169% year over year. So we've seen, you tell us what you see relative to, well, uh, again, they're not the most uh, polite terms, the so smart money versus the dumb money today. <laughs>
3: Well, I think of it as long-term and short-term. And so if you're long-term in this market and you've been in 7, 8, 10 years and you've enjoyed a pretty good run, you had a couple of scares along the way. 2011, uh, when the U.S. lost its AAA rating, uh, you had uh, the big downturn, I believe, in 2016 was tough. Um, and then you had, of course, um, the downturn in, in 2018 for just a little bit. Um, But then you had a salve put on the market with the tax reform. We can't overstate that. The markets were very tired and were looking uh, pretty weak. And when tax reform happened, we essentially gave companies a ton of free money. I mean, we cut the corporate tax rate from 35% down to 21 and said, here's a bunch of money. You should go invest it in cool stuff and create new jobs. And of course, every business owner looked at it and said, well, thanks for the cash, but I need new clients before I build new things, and I don't have any new clients. And so what they did instead was buy their own shares back and send out a bunch of dividends and drive the markets even further and so if you're long-term money and you're watching this then you're saying yeah i'll stand in line and get some free cash that really works out well for me but guess what that kind of has run its course and so here we are in the face of an election with the market struggling you know after rebounding from the covid we're back to these market highs and when you're looking at it going how much further can we go and by the way there's a really big possibility That in the next year i pay higher taxes i you can't overstate people saying to themselves i would like to take capital gains today and know what i'm going to pay versus waiting into 2021 and not knowing what i'm going to pay and once you get past the election and it really doesn't matter where you fall on the election i think you're going to see more deficit spending. I think you're going to see infrastructure spending. I think there's a possibility of inflation coming based on some of this and some struggles in the marketplace. And so to your point, I think a lot of people with long-term money, as you call it, smart money are saying, you know what, now's a really good time to leg out. I've gotten a great run out of this and kind of step aside and see what happens. And then you have all of these new accounts saying, man, I just made 300% on Tesla up until last week. Anyway, and then, right. you know, what am I going to do, right? So I, I do think it's a difference between the, uh, the very short-term new accounts and people who have been doing this a long time and perhaps see a sea change. Sea changes are not apparent at the beginning, and they're really hard to undo.
1: Well said. Well, we're certainly delighted you could join us today, Rodney, and we look forward to having you back because we want to check in from time to time to see what your research is telling you. And I want to say to our audience that, uh, you know, I think you might see the value of uh, those advisors who pay for independent research to give you a sense of what's really going on here, not just looking at sales data, which can skew everything. And by the way, feel free to ask all the financial professionals, you know, no matter what their designation might be, do you pay for independent research? I'd be interested in your answer to that question so thank you for joining us for Fiscal Fitness with John Grace and Daniel Medina and please know that your questions either live or after the show are most welcome you'll help drive where we put our programs together and uh, so bring your questions or send your questions and we want you to feel um, you know less helpless we want you to be prepared Uh, instead of being uncertain we want you to be secure we'll be smart instead of being foolish and professional as opposed to the amateur hour so At the end of the day, we want you to have a portfolio that is strong to weather market uncertainty, safe to mitigate risk, and simple, so you know exactly what you own and why you happen to own exactly what you own. I'm John Grace, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be here next week on Wednesday Pacific time, every Wednesday from 12 to one. We'll see you then. (laughs)